I hope you enjoyed that first session. Hope you're inspired and moved. And, and I hope you took something out of it that was challenging. I hope um, we're moved about what it means to be a follower of Jesus here now today. If, um, if you call Bay City your church home, there's two ways you can approach any church world. You can come in as a know-it-all and be a war horse. Or you can come in with the attitude that says, how can I help? What can I do to help you establish the kingdom here? There's two ways to do everything. War horse or donkey. You always want to be a donkey. Always, always, always. You want to be the humble, kind, take the humble, kind road. So I want to talk to you the second session. I, I just switched the message up because that first session went a little bit long. It actually didn't go long. It's just we started a little bit late. And the reason we started a little late was my fault. So, um, so, so I'm, I've changed that because it's a weeknight and I want, to have you, I want to have you at least having the option to be out of here by nine. All right, because it's a weeknight and we're coming back tomorrow and NCIS is on and, you know, you you, got to work, you worked all day, you got to be, you got to be kind to folks. And so I want to, I want to go in that same vein. I just want to pick up right where I left off. So, So if Jesus wasn't just about forgiving sins, what else was he about? Check this out. This is Colossians chapter two. Once when you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our Sins. Now, I looked that word up all in the original language, and the word all there is actually all. And all means all, and it's best to leave all meaning all, because if all doesn't mean all, you run the risk of your sin not counting in the category of all. So it's best to leave all meaning all, because it says all, and all is better meaning all, because if all doesn't mean all, we're all in trouble, so we just need to leave it saying all. (laughs) Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So, so part of the message of the cross was the forgiveness of sins, which he frames as a canceling of debt, which is interesting because that's exactly how Jesus uh, framed forgiveness. He said, this is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is like when you owe a king more money than you could ever pay, even if everything in your heart wanted to pay. It's when you owe the king more money than you could ever pay, even though everything in you wants to pay, and the king takes compassion and he cancels your debt. And it's not that you don't owe him. He just chooses not to hold it against you. And then the only thing he asks you to do is to go out and make sure you cancel the debt of other people. Um, So that's how Jesus frames it. And Paul brings that up to a bunch of Greek people in Colossae. He says, hey, remember, you don't owe God anymore. That part of the message of the cross is you can go to bed at night knowing that you don't have to spend one ounce of energy trying to make things right between you and God. That's not your call anyway. The servant doesn't make things right with the king. That's just dumb. The king chooses to give grace to the servant. You don't need to spend one bit of energy getting right with God. What you need to do is simply accept the cancellation of debt that the king has offered you. And the greatest way to accept that is to make sure that you consistently and predictably cancel the debt of others. And we honor that side of the cross. We honor it. It is true. It is lovely. It is, it is one of the great messages in the history of the world. In one part of one time in history, they actually called it good news. They called it the gospel. This is the good news. You don't owe God anything anymore. And that is called good news. And we embrace it. 
But that's not the side we're talking about tonight. That gets a lot of airtime. It's not that it's not true. It is true, and we love it, and it should be loved. But you can't talk about everything in one night. I want to talk about the other side. This, watch this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So, so part of the cross was the forgiveness of sins. But the other part of the cross, evidently to Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers, they insisted that Jesus wasn't just about forgiving sins. Jesus was about defeating oppression publicly. Defeating the things that, have, that, that are oppressing you. Now, seven years ago, I preached a message here that I need to take seven minutes and revamp the principle of because what we're going to talk about in this session won't make any sense if you don't understand this. To understand this side of the cross, we have to understand something that happened in Exodus. Hit that next slide. Exodus chapter 3. This is the, uh, one of the first mentions in the whole Bible of the idea of salvation. So this is one of the first mentions of that in the whole Bible. And this is what it says. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I'm going to come down and rescue them. Now, the word rescue there is where we get the word salvation from. Same root word. You could easily translate it, I've come down to save them, deliver them, bring salvation to it. I've come down to redeem it. Redemption was a slave market term. It meant to pay the price to get a guy out of slavery. We're going to remove it. Essentially, there is, let's say it this way. There's a side of salvation that someday, 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 someday the lion and the lamb, someday no more pain, sorrow, crying, someday no more tears, someday no more sickness, someday mansions, someday. There's a side of salvation that is someday, someday, someday. And we embrace it and we honor it and we proclaim that in Jesus, death never gets the last word. Jesus does. And so if you've lost someone that was close to you, if you've lost a son, or a daughter, God forbid, or, or a family member, or a mother, or, or an aunt, or an uncle, or a dad. We, we, we honor the fact that in Jesus Christ, death never gets the last word. Jesus does. And there's an element of salvation that someday, 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 but there's a whole other element of salvation that is here, now, today. In this context, salvation had nothing to do with forgiveness, nor going to heaven when we die. In this context, salvation is used as somebody or something is doing something to you that is causing you suffering, and God is not happy with how it's treating you, and he is determined to save you from that now. This isn't just about forgiveness. This is about whatever is enslaving you. The fear, the guilt, the shame, the depression, the rejection, the anxiety, the worry. This is about that, the anger, the lust, the thing that reminds us, the eagle on a stick. It is that thing. Now, to understand that, we've got to understand something about red water. Let me show you this. This is um, from, next slide, this is from Genesis chapter 2. It says, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was called Pishon, and it winds through the entire land of a villa where there's gold, and the gold was perfect. Once again, I preached this here seven years ago, but to, but to follow through what I want to do tonight, if you don't know this, and I don't want to assume that the room knows it, although I would know part of the room would know it if, you're, if you were here seven years ago and happened to remember what I say, which would mean three of you. This is, a huge, this is a huge play on words. It says the name of the first river was Pishon. 
The word Pishan means spring. But remember, there, there's only, there's only 8,000 words in Hebrew. There's 75,000 words in English. So you, you, Hebrew people had lots more meanings for one word. And, and the most ancient Hebrew writing was hieroglyphics. Remember, they came out of Egypt, so they learned to write with pictures. So every Hebrew word's a picture. Every, every, Hebrew, every Hebrew letter's a picture. Every Hebrew word is a comic strip. So, so, so the word Pishon, when you put the pictures on it, it's something looks dead, and then suddenly something that looks dead has burst forth with life. You would call that hope. You could call it resurrection. For tonight, we'll call it hope. When something looks dead, it's not necessarily over. The best way I could describe it in the pictures is an, an, an extinct volcano. We thought it was dead, but suddenly we thought something we thought was dead is suddenly rumbling with new life. There's suddenly signs of life there. That's called hope. It says there's a river called hope. And it's winding through the entire land of Havilah. Havilah means suffering. So when an ancient Hebrew person read this, what they read was, was there's a river called hope, and it's winding through the entire land of suffering. In other words, if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to go get it. The problem is there's lots of rivers in the land of suffering. There's a river called give up, sell out, make matters worse, compromise. There's a river called all those things, but those aren't the rivers you want. You want the one called hope. And how can you know you found the river of hope? It says you can know you found the river of hope because you'll find a river with perfect gold in it. Now, what I'm fixing to tell you about, I read about it years ago, but I actually had someone show it to me in Perth. Um, If you take perfect gold and you put it in water, it turns all the water blood red. That's the easiest way I could say it. It takes one part of gold to 100,000 parts of water to turn all of it blood red. I've actually seen it with my own two eyes. A guy named Lance in Perth took me to his lab. He put a couple nanoparticles of perfect gold in a little vial of water, and it turned it as red as blood. It was deep red, deep. It looked like a blood sample. He was explaining to me it's how they make stained glass. It's how they do it. The gold doesn't dissolve. It creates a colloidal suspension. It's sort of like colloidal silver. Colloidal silver just means there's little nanoparticles of silver, 16 parts per million in that water, and it doesn't dissolve. It's all little nanoparticles in there, and you know, you spray it up your nose, it'll kill all the bacteria in your sinuses. It, it just does. You rub it on your skin, and just whatever you do with it, right? So gold turns everything blood red. It turns all the water blood red. So without going into it, because I want to cut, I want to cut parts of this tonight in order to get to the point. Um, if the river called Hope, that's winding through the land of suffering, if it has perfect gold in the riverbed, what color is it? It's red. It's red. So when an ancient Hebrew person read this, what they would read is, is there's a river called hope, and it's winding through the entire land of suffering, and you can know you found the river of hope when you find the river of blood. So in ancient Hebrew imagery, when water turns red, that means hope flows through suffering. Fast forward to Egypt. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering, so I'm going to come down and rescue them. So God gets the, the Israelites out of Egypt through a series of 10 plagues. What was the first plague? All the water turns to blood to the Egyptians that was a curse but to the Hebrew people there would have been a buzz in the camp hey did you hear all the water's turning red we might be in the land of suffering now but hope's fixing to flow in that world when water turns red hope flows through suffering God gets them out of Egypt through the banks of the red sea red water hope flows through suffering they get to the other side God calls Moses up the mountain sends him back down And he already finds them worshiping a gold 
cow. He loses the plot and he beats the gold cow into powder. And he makes him throw the gold powder into the water coming out of the rock. And make them drink it for the remission of their sins. Hang on a second. So there was a rock in the desert that red water was flowing out of the side of it. And they were drinking it for the remission of their sins. A later writer named Paul in 1 Corinthians says, When we were in the desert and thought we were going to starve to death, God brought water out of a rock in the desert. And the rock was Jesus Christ. So Paul later says the rock with blood and water coming out of his side was Jesus Christ. This is even in creation. If you take the Bible away, it's even in creation. I've never given birth, nor have I ever seen someone give birth, nor do I think I've missed anything. But (laughs) when when a woman gives birth, the first thing that happens is her water breaks. When her water breaks, she enters into a time of suffering or labor. And in her time of labor, two fluids mixed together, blood and water. So in the greatest suffering a woman will ever know, out comes a bundle of joy. When, when blood and water come together, hope and suffering are intricately mis- mixed. Hey, there's this one time. Um, uh, Jesus shows up at a wedding in Cana, and he performs his first miracle by turning all the water into wine. What was his point? Was his point to provide adult beverages for the party? No, no, they're, they're oppressed. They're under slavery in, in Rome. They're suffering. And he quietly turns all the water red. What's he saying? You might be in the land of suffering now, but I am here to save the day. Hope flows through suffering. He ends up on a cross and they stick him in his side and Blood and water flow. What's the author saying? That at the foot of the cross isn't just the forgiveness of sins, but at the foot of the cross is the hope for your suffering here, now, today. Maybe the cross is God's answer to suffering. Maybe the cross, all through the Bible, why do people suffer? Why do people suffer? Why do people suffer? A whole book is dedicated to it in the Old Testament, a book called Job. And at the end of Job, God just says, I'm not going to tell you why people suffer. You can't handle the truth. Maybe the cross is God's answer to why do people suffer. Why do people suffer? I'm not going to tell you. What I am going to tell you is that you serve a God that is within his character to suffer with you. We don't serve a God who sits high and mighty on a throne watching us suffer. We serve a God willing to put flesh on and enter into suffering. So Jesus didn't just die to forgive sins. Jesus died to in your face confrontations to oppression. So here's what I did. I went back and reread the all four Gospels, and here's what I was looking for. I wanted to see any time Jesus confronted oppression. And once I was looking for it, I saw it everywhere. <laughs> like, and if we're going to be followers of Jesus in Hastings, part of our job in Hastings is not just to celebrate our forgiveness and look forward to heaven one day. Part of our job in Hastings is to look around and confront oppression everywhere we see it. It's to be a part of confronting oppression in your face confrontations to oppression. <laughs> There's this one time. Um, it says that Jesus had an encounter with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was up a tree. And Zacchaeus gets so moved by the compassion of Jesus, he says, Hey, here and now I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus said, That's it. Salvation has come to this house. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Can you get saved by giving half of what you have to the poor? Why not? Was Jesus kidding? 
Did Jesus at least one time proclaim someone saved because he gave half what he had to the poor? Wah, wah, wah. Is Jesus allowed? Or does he have to run it by us? In the first century, what was the only way to be saved? You had to go do temple rituals. Who's not allowed in the temple? Tax collectors. So if your job precludes you from entrance into the temple and the only way to be saved is to do the temple ritual, what hope do you have? That's called oppression. Jesus is like, I'm tired of the temple oppressing people like you. I see a heart change. I'm going to call you saved without a temple ritual. That is in your face. No temple visit, no sacrifice, no sinner's prayer, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9, and 10. I know it surprises some Christians that anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written, but they did. Is Jesus allowed? So you have to run it by us. That is such an in-your-face confrontation to oppression. Have we become the system of oppression Jesus was delivering people from in the name of Jesus? Do we tell people you have to do our rituals to be saved? And if you don't do it our way, then you're not saved. People say, Jesus is the only way, Shane. Jesus is the only way. Okay, yes. But there's a big difference between saying Jesus is the only way and my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus. Huge difference. There's this one time. It says that Jesus went to a prostitute's house. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed? (laughs) Is Jesus allowed to go by a prostitute's house? What's going on in a prostitute's house in the first century? One guess. (laughs) Prostitution. Like Jesus is between customers, right? So is Jesus allowed allowed to go there? That's one. Second question is, is there a worse place on earth to run into Jesus? (laughs) can you imagine that can you imagine like Jesus waiting in the waiting room right and you come out of the back room and you run into Jesus that would be like so awful you might be like go Jesus hey man (laughs) scared me there I I was just here to use the toilet (laughs) and it says that that, that, that the, the, the prostitute was so moved by the compassion of Jesus that, that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, that's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed? Can you forgive sins because someone washes feet with their hair? No temple visit, no sacrifice, no sinner's prayer, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9 and 10. Is that okay for Jesus to do, or does he need to, like, run it by us? Would Jesus be allowed to say he did that today without being labeled a heretic on the World Wide Web? (laughs) In, In the first century, what was the only way to get saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitutes. So Jesus subverts the entire temple oppressive system of power and proclaims her forgiven without ritual. And aren't you glad that's not the rule? For all my bald brothers in the room. (laughs) Can you imagine? How did you meet the risen Christ? Well, I came to church. I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus in my heart to be my personal Lord and Savior. It was the best day of my life. Really? 
You didn't wash his feet with your hair? <laughs> I'm in, you're out, I'm right. You're, I mean, with all respect to all my bald brothers, for you to wash his feet with your hair would be a three-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down and used like a buffer. In the last two years, I've done a seventh-day Adventist state conference, a Baptist national conference. I've done a citywide Catholic conference. I've done about every state training of the AOG there is. I've, I've preached for Presbyterians. I went to one place. They wanted me to wear a robe while I was talking. I've preached for weirdos. I've preached, I've, I've preached for all of them. But, but there's one story that they have no answer for. It says that Jesus was preaching in a full house. And it says there's a paralyzed guy who couldn't get in. And so the place was so full. So his four friends took him to the guy's roof. Removed part of the roof. No mention of the owner of the house. They lower him in from the four corners of his mat. It's the single most chaotic scene in Jesus' whole ministry. I don't care how good of a communicator I am. If someone repels from the ceiling, the meeting is over, right? Right? Guy comes down, right? He's paralyzed. He can't get in. And this is what it says. And Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. (laughs) Is Jesus allowed? Can you get saved because someone else is believing for you? None of them, nobody knows what to do with that. Neither do I. I'm just happy to accept it for what it is. I'm just happy to stand with the fact that Jesus is allowed to do whatever he likes. In the first century, what's the only way to get saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Paralyzed people. So if you're not allowed in the only place that you can get saved, what do you do? You lose hope. What do you do? Jesus goes, you know what? You can't go to the temple and you've lost all hope. But I see you have the good friends. I'm going to just proclaim you forgiven that way. Is Jesus allowed? Yes. How far do you take that? I don't know. But I know this. If you're a mom and you're believing for your unbelieving children, Jesus sees that stuff somehow. A later writer named Paul said it this way. Don't you know it's the faith of a saved wife that can save her unbelieving husband? (laughs) Is Paul allowed? Does he have to run it by us? Somebody asked me, I was preaching this one, somebody asked me one time afterwards, What are you saying, Shane? What are you saying? You saying you go to heaven by marrying the right woman? Okay, first of all, if that's your question, you have missed my entire point. That's first. Second, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell is above my pay grade and yours. Can you go to heaven by marrying the right woman? I have no idea. I do know this. You marry the wrong woman, you will live in hell today. The temple system was, was oppressing this man. That's the bigger point. And Jesus was setting him free. Oh, we could talk about this all night, but I'll run out of time, and I've got to get to this story. Um, <laughs> I've been talking for 30 minutes. I hope it didn't feel that way. I was just get going, you know. <laughs> it, it says this. Uh, let me just, I want you to address this question inside. Don't answer out loud. Just address it inside. Is there any story from Jesus' life that makes you embarrassed to be a Christian? 
Is there any story in Jesus' life that when you read it, you go, oh, no. I hope my friends never, ever ask me about this. <laughs> I had one. I had one. Um, my, my worst story of Jesus' whole life was Bethesda. I hated that story. I actually made an internal agreement with myself never to speak about it, but now I have to speak about it because it's now the single coolest story in the whole, in the whole of Jesus' ministry because I learned more about it. But, um, but on the surface, it seems like the worst story ever. If, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. I will tell the story, and I will tell it well. You could read about the story of John chapter 5. And it's, and it's Thursday night, you're in church, you know your Bible, you know the story of the Pool of Bethesda. It says this, that just inside the sheep gate of Jerusalem, there was a pool called Bethesda. And occasionally an angel would stir the water of the Pool of Bethesda, and only the first sick person in would get healed, and everyone else would go home sick. Anybody okay with that? What kind of jerk God does that? That's just terrible. Here's how that frames God. That God's in heaven and he's bored. And he's like, you know what? There's not enough problems in the world for me to handle. I need an angel over here. Give me an angel. Give me an angel. Give me an angel. The angel comes and sees God and God says, hey, you see that pool down there? It's called Bethesda. Here's what we're going to do. This would be so cool. Here's what we're going to do. I-, I want you to occasionally, when I tell you, I want you to go down there and stir the pool. And the first sick person in, we're going to heal them and nobody else. That's so we're going to heal them and nobody else. What we'll do is we'll successfully create a race amongst the afflicted. This will be so awesome. Because nothing gets my God heart beaten like a bunch of crippled people trying to move fast. <laughs> this is going to be hilarious. That's what we need. More crippled people trying to move fast. This is going to be hilarious. When YouTube comes out, we'll go viral. This will be awesome. That's not good. But it's in the Bible, right? You're going, wow. You know, some, some versions of the Bible, they actually put an asterisk by the story, and at the bottom in really small letters, it says, we actually are not sure this should be here. <laughs> Why? Because it, it just does something inside of you. You read that and you go, what? Then it gets worse. Jesus shows up and participates. Like, it's terrible. It says he shows up. And he finds a guy that had been there paralyzed for 38 years. Now, we, we tend to read the Bible unemotionally. We look for doctrine, you know. But, but anyway, if you're, if you're not 38 years old, you don't have an idea on planet Earth what 38 years is. 38 years paralyzed. I'm 39. I know, I, 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 I know. I, I, I went gray early. I know. I said, I'm 39. The lady in the back went, oh, my God. What happened to you? What sort of experimental medicine did they do to you? Oh, my God. I, I, I went gray. I went gray at 24. It did wonders for my career. Horrors for my love life. Last year, I was asked on a date by a 59-year-old woman. <laughs> My mom's 60, right? I don't even know how that works. Hey, Ma, this is Sue. I think y'all went to school together. I don't even know what you do with that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I went great early. I, you know. 
Anyway, th- th- 38 years he's been paralyzed. And if you take off your Jesus bias goggles, right, so you just remove that for a second and just read it for what it is, if you're honest, Jesus is sarcastic. He walks up to this 38-year paralytic and he says, essentially, what's the matter, bro? It ain't working for you. And remember what the 38-year paralytic guy says? He says, he defends himself. He's like, um, but Rabbi, you know the rules. When the water stirs, only the first one in gets healed. My legs don't work. I can't ever be one. If I can paraphrase here. Rabbi, you know the rules. Only the first one in gets healed when the water stirred. And that jerk over there with a sore throat, he keeps jumping in. I tried to reason with him. Mate, it's just a sore throat. Can you wait your turn? I've been here 38 years. My legs don't work. But he won't listen to reason. Jerk with a sore throat jumps in, always takes my place. I just took the easy way out. I just said, there's so much more in the Bible to talk about. I just will never talk about it. And I hope that no one ever asks. Then I got invited to Jerusalem by one of the top history experts in Jerusalem. So he says, if you come, I'll show you around. And so, and so I flew from London. And he spent three private days with me. Showing me all this stuff, you know. And I was a little turned around. I didn't know where I was. And we walk inside the sheep gate. And uh, um, you're a little ahead of me, just, just a little. Hang on, just one second. And so he, we walk inside the sheep gate, and he goes, uh, yeah, 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 that's the pool of Bethesda. <laughs> and he walks away, and I'm going, you got to be kidding me. Right? And he told me I could stop him. I just thought maybe he had the same rule I did. We don't talk about this story because it's just so awful. So he says, yeah, 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 that's the pool of Bethesda. Now, in your imagination, when I told you the story of the pool of Bethesda, or when you've read it, how big is it? Everybody's got an imagination. How big is it? So I thought, I thought in my imagination, there's no wrong imagination. I just thought it was about the size of this room. I reckoned it was about two feet deep because, you know, I'm crippled people trying to get in, right? I, I thought, well, you know, it would be about this. I, f- I figured, you know, sick people be sitting all around. That's, that's just what I thought. He says, yeah, 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 that's the pool of Bethesda. And he pointed at this. Let me show you a picture of it. Now I'm, next, now I'm ready. Next slide. Okay, so this is the pool of Bethesda. Um, just to give you uh, some perspective here, um, it is 100 meters, here's my trusty thing, it's 100 meters this way, just to give you some perspective, see up here, see this thing right here, that's a grown man crossing a bridge, the pool of Bethesda is so gigantic, it requires a bridge to get across it, it's 100 meters long, by 40 meters wide probably, by, by 40 feet deep, like from here to here is at least 40 foot deep. Now, you know the story. If you know the story and the guy says, yeah, 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 that's the pool of Bethesda, what's your question? My question was, how many people died here? (laughs) Right? Like, honestly, like, can you picture it? Like crippled people sitting around that and then someone says, angels during the water! And they're like, go! (laughs) And they don't realize till they're in the water that they're number two. You are so gone, bro. So I asked the history expert, I said, when they excavated this thing, how many bodies did they find at the bottom? He looked at me like, have you ever read a book in your life? What, what actually came out of his mouth was, was you're joking. Everybody knows this. Which made me feel awkward because if everybody knows it and I don't know it, 
that literally makes me the stupidest person on earth. So I played, I, I played along at first. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Everybody knows this. Why don't you remind me again what it is everybody knows. He said, um, you really don't know. I said, I'm really embarrassed, but I don't. He goes, oh. then we must talk about this. Um, because if you're thinking what I think you're thinking, you might think God is awful. I said, yeah. And he changed my whole world on this with two questions. First question, what religion was ruling Jerusalem when Jesus walked the earth? I said, Judaism. He said, no, Roman Caesar worship, which of course was right. I I preached the first session, duh, right? He said, no, no, Roman Caesar worship. He said, there was upwards of 40 pagan gods operating in Jerusalem. There was Dionysus, there was Attis, there was Adonis, there was Mithra, there was Horus, there was Amuran in the south, the goat god Pan in the north, there was Serapis, there was Kibbala, there was Diana, there was Artemis, just to name a few. Second question. He said, you didn't think the angel in John chapter 5 was the angel of our God, did you? I said, it crossed my mind. He said, no, man. He said, Bethesda is the epicenter of the pagan worship of the Greek god of healing, Serapis. It was pagan. Then he got bothered. He goes, Shane, are there people in this world that think it's the angel of our god? I said, there's a few. Mostly Australians. Mostly. It's mostly them. Only they would think God is that awful. He said, no, look around you, man. And seriously, once he started pointing it out, there's half statues of Serapis everywhere. If I can ask you for grace and ask for five more minutes, I know I told you you'd be done by nine, but I can't end right now. He said, what you're looking at here is the, is the front lawn of, Ser- of, of, the, of the temple of Serapis. He said, you're standing on the temple of Serapis, on the ruins of it, and you're taking a picture of their front lawn. He said, the problem with this big deep pool is it would overflow. When it overflowed, they have a water problem in the city. And so the Roman officials told the priest of Serapis, you've got to deal with your water issue, right? And he said, now what do you do if you've got a water problem flowing into the city? What do you do? He said, what you do is you build a smaller catchment area to solve the water problem, which they happen to do just on the other side of the temple. So if you could picture this, there's this giant pool, and then there is the temple, and then on the other side of the temple is a small pool. And it's roughly a little bit bigger than this room, and it's roughly two feet deep. Let me show it to you. Next slide. So this is the smaller catchment pool. As you can see, um, it's much shallower. There's places for people to sit around the pool. There's little holes where they would have built the aqueduct system to move water from one to the other. Now, I want you to think about it. If there's two feet of water in this, and the other pool's fixing to overflow, and they move water from the big pool to the small pool, what would happen to the water in the small pool? Stirs. So the Roman officials asked the priest of Serapis. They said, look, we have a money-making opportunity here. 
Here's the deal. Let's tell the people that it's the angel of Serapis stirring the water and only the first one in gets healed and no one else. And here's what will happen. People will pay us a premium to sit the closest by the pool in the hope that one day they'll get healed. And the priest of Serapis said, well, we can do that, but the problem is no one's going to actually get healed. They said, we'll handle that. And what they did was they used a plant. They took someone who was already whole. They told them exactly when they were going to move the water. And so, by, and so what they would do is they'd jump in the water and shout. And by the time they shouted, the water was stirring around them. And then they'd come up out of the water whole and healthy. Which only exacerbated the myth that this was working. And I thought, I'm, I'm standing there at the pool of Bethesda looking at all this. And I'm going like this. He goes, yes, he said, he said, Bethesda was the pagan worship of Serapis, and it was the Roman and Serapis extortion of the poor and the afflicted. And I thought, now I can preach it. So Jesus shows up at the epicenter of Roman extortion of the poor and the afflicted, and he doesn't pick a mildly sick guy with a headache. He picks the sickest dude in the whole place. And he says, hey, this ain't working for you. No, but Rabbi, you know the rules. When the water moves, the guy with the jerk of sore throat jumps in. I don't have anybody. And without the help of stirred water, Jesus heals him as a demonstration of a new kind of kingdom serving a God that does not differentiate with people and oppress people over stirred water. Essentially, Jesus is like, you can sit the rest of your life if you want, or you can follow a better way. Bethesda was an in-your-face confrontation to Roman and Serapis extortion of the poor and the afflicted. He gets to the end of the story, and I said, everybody knows this? I said, where'd you read that, man? He said, read it. I live here. He said, I'm in my mid-60s, and I've never considered till right now that there was a person on this earth that thought that was the angel of our God. He said, how would you preach that? What would you do with that? He said, it's bothering me that people... He said, I thought it was such common knowledge, I didn't even include it on the tour. I was like, bro, you might ought to start including that one on the tour. <laughs> Especially for Australians. I said, but no, seriously, where could I read that? Not that I don't believe you, I'm looking at it, but where, where, and that makes so much more sense. He goes, Shane, seriously, I don't know where to read that. I live here. I've lived here my whole life. I've never considered it. I've never considered anybody would think that. It's outside the character of our God. He said, but just check the pool. See, see the smaller pool? See where that shadow is in that picture behind me? See the picture? See the shadow? See, see that yellow plaque right there? Let me blow it up for you so you can read it. Next slide. Now, it's a little bit bright, but you should be able to read that right there. Can everybody read that? Temple of Serapis. It's on a plaque in the middle of the pool. Everybody knows this. It gets worse. Next to the plaque is a billboard. Let me show you the billboard. Next slide. See right here it says Bethesda, right? Here is the pool of Bethesda. Can you read that in English? Pagan medicinal baths. Everybody knows this. It's on a billboard next to a plaque. 
in the middle of the pool. Which leads me to this question. If we were wrong about Bethesda, what else could we be wrong about? Maybe we should open more discussions about God instead of closing them. Maybe we should journey in faith with good, curious questions than making everybody see it our way. Maybe we should be donkeys and not war horses. Hmm. How many pastors go to Jerusalem every year? Thousands. How come I've never heard that? Everybody knows this. I was preaching this at the Jesus Dome in Durban. One of my best friends is there. His name's Wayne Hoff. He's, a, he's the dean of their whole Bible college. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He was flabbergasted by this. We went to dinner afterwards. He pulls out his iPad, and he showed me a photograph on his iPad of the same exact billboard. He said, Shane, I stood there. I took a photo of the same exact billboard, and I didn't see it. I said, why? He said, I guess when you start with your conclusion, you always see it. Even when the billboard is screaming something else. Bethesda is so much better when it's an in-your-face confrontation to oppression. Which leads me to four questions I want us to wrestle with. Next slide. What's driving you that you need deliverance from? I'm not worried if you're saved and forgiven. I want to know, are you free? Second, what are you doing to help free others from their slavery? If I understand scripture right, what you make happen for others, God makes happen for you. The best way to be set free yourself is to actively be a part of setting other people free. To to preach a gospel that's complete, not just forgiveness, but freedom. Next slide, let's say it this way. Is there any place that you've put your hopes for restoration into the hands of the powers that have been already defeated publicly? In other words, where are you trusting your own cleverness, your own oppression? Where are you trusting your ability to power up? Where are you trusting stirred water? Maybe the best question for us to wrestle with is, where do you need salvation for your house today? Not someday. Now. Now. So let's close tonight in prayer and let's wrestle with those questions and let's, let's pray for the person on our left and on our right and for our church and for our city. So Lord, we proclaim that salvation can come today, not someday, but now. And for the person on my left, I pray that wherever they need salvation for their house today, that it would come today, that they would be free from oppression today. And for the person on my right, I pray that they wouldn't just be forgiven, they'd be set free today, today. And for our church, I pray that anything that's oppressing it, it would be released, we would be released from it today, here, now, today. And as a church family, individually and systemically we make a commitment not to just go to heaven one day when we die but to be a part of bringing heaven to every place we see hell here now today holy spirit use us mightily to set people free use us mightily to set people free would you look this way i bless you tonight to know that there's blood in the water that we're called to establish a kingdom on the back of a donkey not a war horse There's blood in the water. There's hope for your suffering. I bless you tonight to know that your story is not over. There is more to it. Until I see you again tomorrow night, grace and peace. God bless.